You'll notice there that from his sickness is added. As to how this man has been saved, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And it is from that last verse that this sermon derives its title, No Other Name. Father, these are your words. They are our bread, they are our life, they are our daily food. By them we know you, by them we know the living Christ. By them we are corrected and by them we are directed. Lord, they are a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. We pray today that you would strengthen us. Lord, that you would edify us and build us up that we might grow in our faith and our confidence that by these things we also, like Peter, might be filled with the Spirit of God and emboldened to preach Christ to those around us. Make us, Lord, increasingly a brighter light in this dark place. We ask all of this to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1 begins as they were speaking to the people the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. Those are strong words. Those are violent words. They're assertive words. Before Peter and John can even begin to finish speaking to the people, we see this very authoritative and powerful group come up and interrupt them as they are speaking. They interrupt the gathering in Solomon's portico at the temple. And the text would tell us that this was a very abrupt, confrontative interruption. The air got thick very quickly. People knew right away something was wrong. They were in trouble. The word came up to them, has has a sense of suddenness about it. And sometimes it's used as it is over in chapter 6 and verse 12 regarding Stephen. You see that oftentimes it implies a hostile... Uh, uh, intent it says they stirred up the people the elders and the scribes and they came up to him that is Stephen dragging him away and brought him to the Sanhedrin and so it is with these Jesus' apostles that they will be brought before that very same Sanhedrin Verse 2 tells us that this group was really agitated. It's an excellent rending of the word, actually, greatly agitated. It, It refers to this deep internal agitation of spirit. These people were hot. They were seething. And Luke tells us that this this delegation is comprised of three distinct groups of people. He names them the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees. The priests were the Levitical priests. They were just responsible for the evening sacrifices and for the prayers. You remember that the disciples or the apostles were headed up to the temple for prayers at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
And then we read of the captain of the temple guard. This man was the second highest official, ranking right under the high priest. He was the chief of the temple police, and he was empowered to maintain order in that temple. He was the muscle behind all of this. And then there were the Sadducees. These were the men in the long robes with their academic hats, the wealthy elitists who who ultimately controlled all of Jewish political and religious life. They were the power brokers, religiously speaking, of the day. They were wealthy, and because they were wealthy and because they were the the one percenters in that day, they were not interested at all at anyone who would raise the ire of Rome and potentially put it at, at, at risk all that they had. They had it good, and they did not want to lose it. R. Kent Hughes says this about these men. He says, quote, they were unprincipled collaborationists. They were political sycophants. That means a kiss-up or a bootlicker, a lick-splittle. You ever heard of a lick-spittle? I'd never heard of it either, but I, I like the definition. You, you run around licking up the spittle of other men. That's what they were, lick-spittles, sycophants. You, they were unprincipled collaborationists, political sycophants who would sell their own mothers to stay in power. I think he's right. And Peter and John know it. These were the very men along with the Pharisees who were the most influential in seeing Christ condemned. Jesus was a threat to their power. Jesus was a threat to their control. Jesus was a threat to their wealth. Jesus was a threat to their sense of self-righteousness. Jesus had to be done away with. These men, interestingly, are on the opposite end of the spectrum theologically from the Pharisees. They were religious liberals who denied the supernatural. They denied evil spirits. They denied angelic beings. They denied the afterlife, and therefore they denied the resurrection. And so Luke gives us in verse 2 the very motivation for their confrontation. Look at it. Verse 2 They were greatly agitated. Why? Because they were teaching the people, that is Peter and John, and they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In other words, there were two bones that were lodged firmly in these men's throats. First was the fact that these hayseed Galileans were teaching the people. They had no right to teach the people. They were not approved to teach the people. The people belong to them. You think of it. Here they are at the evening prayers. Here they are, and and, and the crowd looks a little bit diminished. Where is everybody? Well, everybody's gathered around these Galileans hearing a sermon about this very man they tried to put, they did put to death, and the very testimony of Christ and the resurrection that they tried to suppress. They were very afraid of losing their status before the people, 
The people gave these men their ear. They were convicted of their sins. They were convinced about Jesus by the preaching of Peter and John. And these men knew full well they were very jealous men and they were about to lose it all. You remember their statement about Jesus back when when he was still living. They, They wanted to rid themselves of him because the nation would be lost. The nation would be, would be misled in their thinking. These men, verse 13 tells us, were uneducated and untrained. That is, they looked down their snouts at these men as those who were of, of, of an alma mater of, of no degree. These were men who had no degrees. There were no letters after their names. They had no status and they were fishermen, and if they wanted to put on a lakeside demonstration about mending nets or cleaning carp, it would all be okay with them. But how dare they come to the temple, our place, among our people. Peter and John were not priests. They were not formally educated. And from the eyes of This very astute group, these men did not have the proper certification to teach the Torah. That was one bone in their throat, but there was a bigger bone, and that is that they were proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And this, too, is is in two part. You want to know why they're agitated? Well, they're agitated on the one hand because there is a theological difference between them and the, the message that Peter and John are preaching. The Sadducees had an errant doctrinal view. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. And here these men were teaching people that Christ, in fact, rose from the dead, exposing the Sadducees before their own people as heretics. And the greater issue, frankly, is the name of Jesus. And two months earlier, these men, this group of men, thought they had fixed that problem. Jesus also was unauthorized. Jesus also had stirred the pot. Jesus also had a significant following that threatened the status quo. And these same Jewish leaders personally had seen to it that Jesus would die as a blasphemer. And they needed to nip this, this new up, upswelling in the, in the bud. Verse 3, and they laid their hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. You remember Peter and John had gone up to the temple at 3 in the afternoon. It's now evening, so a number of hours have passed. Again, we have a summary of events recorded by Luke in Acts of all that transpired that day. But hours have passed, and now the sun was beginning to set. And by Jewish law, you could not begin a trial after dark. And you'll remember that they, this same group of men were not concerned for that at all when it came to the Lord Jesus Christ. They put him on trial at night against Jewish law. But here they imprisoned these men. But Luke wants us to understand with clarity what he's been trying to demonstrate all the way along and he will continue to demonstrate throughout the the whole book of Acts and that is this, that though they imprisoned the preacher, the word of God is not imprisoned. It is critical to Luke that we see this. So he, he says they lay their hands on them and they put them in jail and look at the first word of verse four, but... 
Even so, in contrast to all that was going on with the preacher of the message, many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. This is another of Luke's statements, proclaiming the unbridled power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. It is invincible. It is unstoppable. It is utterly irrepressible. (laughs) The church in chapter 1 and verse 15 is 120 people. And then you go to chapter 2 and verse 41, you find that there were 3,000 people converted at Peter's first sermon. So now we've got 3,120 people, and then we read in 247 that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Who knows how big the number is at this point? And then on this day, Luke records in chapter 4 and verse 4 that 5,000 or more, depending on how we understand it, 5,000 or more were added to the church. It may be a total of 5,000 people were added. Or it may be, meaning that if we take the 120 and we take the 3,000 and we add a few, a few more and all of those that the Lord was adding, that ultimately we had 5,000 people. Or it may be, and I think it's much more likely that we are to add 5,000 new converts to all those that have been added already. And here's the thing, that number then, we would say, what, eight, ten thousand. 10,000? Well, the text is gender specific. It was 5,000 of the men. If those men come along with women and children, we might think that the church is upwards of 20,000 people at this point. And that's the point. Luke is saying, do you see what's happening? The church is exploding ex- exponentially. You cannot restrain the power of God through the gospel. Despite crucifying Christ, despite the intense opposition of Jewish leadership, despite the imprisonment of Peter and John, try as they may, there is no power on heaven, in heaven or on the earth that can restrain the sovereign work of Christ in building his church. And Luke wants us to see it. Beloved brethren in Christ, get on the train. Preach the unfailing gospel. Why are we so afraid? Why are we so hesitant? Why is it that what looms large in our heads is preach as I may, they probably never believe? Why do we shrink back? Let Peter stand as an example to us. Verse 5, now it happened on the next day. Their rulers and elders and scribes were gathered together in Jerusalem. This is a, a bigger group. Of, of the hoity-toities in Israel. The, uh, this is a larger group. This is the Sanhedrin. And we're given the names of some who were there. Annas, the high priest, who actually was no longer the high priest, but had been the high priest. And anyway, I don't want to spend a bunch of time here this morning. There's Caiaphas. You know the name. 
There's John and there's Alexander. There were all who were of high priestly descent. In other words, this very erudite, uh, noble, uh, uh, religious higher-ups, they're all gathered. Here is the Supreme Court, if you will, of, of Israel, the Sanhedrin. And it can suffice this morning in the interest of time to just say this is a very intimidating group of very powerful men. This is the precise group that condemned Christ. This is the precise group that delivered him up to the Romans. And here are Peter and John. You remember they were there that night. They've seen this group in action before. And they must have had a very definite sense that not all was going to go well for them. Verse 7, when they had placed them in their midst, that is to say that the Sanhedrin sat in a semicircle. And the one who stood before them being examined stood in the center of that semicircle. This is a very intimidating group of people. The very seed of Jewish power that had the power of life and death to turn them over to Rome. Imagine, imagine what it must have been like for, for simple Peter and, and uneducated John, the fisherman. The formerly lame beggar who had seen these men perhaps moving into the temple, but they would have never given him a moment of their time. You remember the beggar lived under the assumption of some sort of guilty, uh, a sinful guilt in his life. That's why he would have been born a, 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 a cripple. Here are these three men standing before this very august collection of religious higher-ups. You cannot imagine a more intimidating situation than this. And then that group presses in and wants to know by what power and in what name have you done this? This is a question of how, and this is a question of whom. They want to know what power resulted in the healing of this lame man from birth, and they want to know by what authority they had performed this miracle. You might think of, of some employees from a bank, for instance, being found in the bank vault preparing to, to steal things, and, 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 and the bank would pull these, these thieves before them and say, how, first of all, did you get in here, and by what authority did you access the vault? That's what they want to know. How did you do this, and who gave you permission to do it? Peter was only too happy to fill in the blanks. I got to wonder what his pulse was at this point, really. Because there had to be a strange mix in him. That sort of out of body kind of like, am I really standing <laughs> right here, right now? And yet, filled by the Spirit of God, Peter is utterly fearless and relentless in his proclamation of the truth. Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, you remember, under the control of the Holy Spirit, 
Do you recall back at the introduction in the book of Acts, we, we, we traced this through a little bit in the scriptures and we, we considered what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? And one of the first things we see almost always connected with the filling of the Spirit of God is a testifying of the truth of God. There is a bold testimony that comes from the mouths of those whose tongues are controlled by the Spirit of God. This really is the very fulfillment of what, we, what Jesus said to his disciples. Do you remember this in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12? Jesus said to them, now, men, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how or what you are to speak in your defense or what you are to say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Now that is a comforting promise. Peter had no notes. Peter is not working through something he had rehearsed the night before as he was sitting in jail. Peter, as he opened his mouth, spoke by the Holy Spirit and he is imbued with courage and boldness to stand before the supreme court of the land with his very life at stake. And he says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being examined today for a good deed done to a sick man as to how this man has been saved from his sickness, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, he has been healed. This is such an amazing moment. I know how much you all like public speaking. People say that is the most terrifying thing known to mankind, to get up in front of people and speak. Here is Peter preaching with confidence, a confidence that is so evident that we'll see next week, Lord willing, these men acknowledge his confidence and the clarity and the power with which he speaks. Peter has never taken a preaching class, and yet here he is gripped by the power of the Holy Spirit in front of a bunch of religious men in robes. The man who just a couple of months ago cowered in front of a servant girl is standing before the Sanhedrin. And boy, does he sound like a preacher. Rulers and elders of the people, let it be known to you. Are you kidding? Let it be known to you. And not just to you, but to the the whole house of Israel. This is a message for the Sanhedrin, yes, but this is a message for all Israel and for, for every Jew. And no one will disregard what Peter is to preach here. You want to know how and you want to know who? I'll answer both questions with one name. That is the name Jesus Christ. And by name... Peter is speaking, we sang it earlier, of all that Jesus is, his character and his person, and all that Jesus does, 
This has been a theme in these two chapters. Peter speaks of the name of Christ in chapter 3, verse 6. He mentions it twice in verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 410, 4.12, 4.17, 4.18. The name, the name, the name. All that Christ is, all that he does. He is deity. He is God. He is the very son of God and the son of man. He is the sovereign king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is God's suffering servant. He is the Lamb of God who bears the sin of the world. He is the holy and righteous one. He is the author of life. He is the prophet greater than Moses, and no one can disregard what he teaches. He is your Messiah. He is the one who healed this crippled man, gave him salvation, and gave him a whole body. It is by that name. There is no name under heaven by which a man can be saved, but by this name, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Nazarene. No name commands greater power or possesses higher authority than the name of Christ. He is the how, and he is the who, and then Peter drops a bomb. Middle of verse 10, Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, and it is by this name that this man stands here before you in good health. My, how the tables have turned. Peter the prosecuted has become Peter the prosecutor. And he lays the blame right at their feet. You crucified him. You put Jesus to death. Peter's first sermon, you crucified Christ. Peter's second sermon, you crucified Christ. Peter before the Sanhedrin, you crucified Christ. And God raised him from the dead. You stand against God. You are opposed to Yahweh, you who claim to be his very servants. And God overruled your wicked plans, and God raised his son to life. And these were fighting words to the Sanhedrin who did not believe in the resurrection. And all of this, Peter says, was carried out by God's eternal plan and purpose. And the man you thought you did away with is alive, he is well. He's risen, ascended, exalted, and it is by his name that this man, and he's pointing, you know he's pointing at the man standing there in good health. This man stands before you today. I'll bet you could have heard a pin drop. Christ, beloved, is the answer to the devastating effects of sin. Whether it is a man's quadriplegia or whether it is the sinful nature and the sinful acts that bring about our death, Christ gives life. Christ is the great physician. 
And Peter proclaims that name, that name of the living Christ, and then he lowers the boom on them by saying, men, I want you to open up your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 118. You can turn there. Peter quotes out of that psalm, verse 22, and he says, He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very chief cornerstone. This is a text that would have been familiar to them, or at least should have been. Jesus spoke these words to these, these men, this same group. Jesus spoke this word, these words to them not a, not, not, not two months before. You stay there in, in Acts, but I just want to read to you from Matthew chapter 21. Here's Jesus teaching on the day of his triumphal entry a week before he was crucified. And he says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now when harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his fruit. And the vine growers took his slaves, they beat one and killed another and stoned a third, and then he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same to them. But afterward, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, Come, let's kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They're talking about themselves. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, this very same bunch, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to seize him, they feared the crowds because they were regarding him to be a prophet. Psalm 118. begin in verse 19. 
Open to me the gates of righteousness. How, my friends, were the gates of righteousness open to you? Where are you going to get the righteousness by which you can enter the gates of righteousness? And I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to Yah. This is the gate of Yahweh. The righteous will enter through it. And I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me. And you have become my salvation. And here's our verse. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is from Yahweh, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Don't miss this next verse. This is the day which Yahweh has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh, Yahweh, save Oh, Yahweh, succeed. My friends, what is the day that Yahweh has made? If you were like me in the 70s, you sang this song all the time. You'd wake up and you'd see the sunshine. Your mother would have scrambled eggs and bacon. Your dad promised to take you fishing in the afternoon. And you said, Blessed be the name of the Lord, this is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. No lawn mowing, right? Friends, do you see what day it is that the Lord has made, that we should rejoice and be glad in it? It is the day in which the stone was rejected by these very builders. It was the day that that stone was established by God as the chief cornerstone by which the whole building is fitted together. We rejoice in the sacrifice and the rejection and the crucifixion of Christ. Yeah, because that's the way we were made righteous. We'll go back to Acts. Peter says to them, in essence, listen. You men have made the pages of Scripture. You men were spoken of by the psalmist. In ancient times, God put you in his word. You are the builders. You are the leaders of Israel. You are the ones to whom all Israel looked. And God gave you a cornerstone. He put him right in your very midst, that very stone that was perfect, 90 degrees. 
could sit as the cornerstone by which the whole kingdom and the foundation of everything could be, could be founded. All that God was going to do provided this cornerstone who is Christ, a cornerstone who is choice, a cornerstone who is precious and to be treasured. He gave you a perfect cornerstone and you rejected him. Because you sought to build a foundation of your own. You wanted your own religion. You wanted your own rules. You wanted your own righteousness. And therefore you rejected Jesus Christ, the very cornerstone of God's redemptive plan. God, the master builder, has made him the chief cornerstone. He has placed him at the corner of it all. And there is no other foundation that can be laid other than the one that is laid. And you must be in right relationship to this cornerstone or you are under the judgment of God. You rejected him. And by their own testimony, they had a wretched end if they continued in their stiff-necked rebellion. My friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, do you understand that he is the creator of all things? He is the creator of you. And you are alienated from God by your sin. And there is not enough good that you could ever do to reconcile yourself to God. The redemption of your soul is too expensive, says the psalmist, that you should cease trying forever to pay it. And every other religion on planet Earth seeks to do enough good that somehow God will say, well, I guess you passed. You got a passing grade. You got a C. You're going to make it. That is not the way this all goes down in the end. The way this goes down in the end is that you must attain to a perfect righteousness. And the only way to enter through those perfect gates is to have the righteousness of Christ as your own. It's a righteousness that God has promised to give you and to credit to your account if you will place your hope in his son. Do you realize that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone? Do you recognize, do you understand that he is the hub of the universe, that he is everything? This is the clear testimony of scripture, that Jesus alone is the very way to heaven. And so Peter reaches his punchline in verse 12. Let's look at it. There is salvation, Peter says, in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's just start at the end of the verse. Do you see that there is something that is a necessity for you? It's a necessity for every Jew, for every Gentile, for every male, for every, every female, for every young person, for everyone who has ever been born, there is a necessity, and that is that you must be saved. In fact, Peter even uses the word we. Peter acknowledges that he too is in, in need of this salvation. 
And the Bible teaches that as you come into this world, you come in by nature a sinner, which is why you commit sins. For all have sinned, says Paul in the book of Romans, and fallen short of the glory of God, fallen short of his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. Paul goes on to say there's none righteous, not even one. And that you are corrupt from the inside out. And if you want to know why you continue to sin, it is because you are a sinner at the core. You're guilty and you need a heart change. You need a new, a new heart and a new spirit. You must be saved from your sin. You must be saved from eternal hell. You must be saved from God himself. This is a God, the scriptures say, has indignation with sinners every day. He is not a Santa in the sky. But instead, he is a just judge who will not leave the guilty unpunished. And friend, if you're honest with me, you know this, don't you? When you sit in your room, in those, those, those moments that you have quiet by yourself, you're fully aware, aren't you, at some level, that, that you are going to be held accountable for the life that you've lived. If you don't understand that, then I pity you because Jesus said it's not the righteous. In other words, those who, who consider themselves righteous, who need a Savior, it, it, is, it is sinners. And Christ Jesus came to seek and to save lost people, not those who think they've got it all together. Peter looks right into the eyes of these religious, self-righteous men who thought themselves just such a cut above everybody else, and he tells them, look, you must be saved. That is not the way Jews, by and large, thought. They relished in their choosing, in being the chosen people of God. They relished in, in all their religiosity and all the, the fact that scriptures had come down through them and the temple worship and all of those things. And they essentially thought themselves a cut above. And these men were a cut above even that. And, and Paul, Peter tells them, you must be saved. How can a man say, be saved? Peter says this, it's by Christ alone. That's it. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is what? Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. You'll notice he did not say through Buddha. You'll notice he did not say through Muhammad. You'll notice he did not say through priests or through popes. You'll notice he did not say through your own efforts. The free gift of God, it is a gift that must come from God and it must be through Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord. Paul again writes in Romans 3.20, by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight. And if that isn't enough, in Galatians 2.16, he goes to lengths to make this expressly clear. He says, man is not justified by works of the law. That is, your, your goodness can never get you there. But it's through faith in Jesus Christ he says, even we, Jews, have believed in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Since by works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Do you think he's, he's making a point? Beloved, there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name which has been given among men. And all history is pointing toward the day when every knee, including yours, will bow 
And every tongue, including yours, will acknowledge, some of you gladly, some of you through your, through your gritted teeth, that Jesus is Lord. He has the name which is above every name. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, very exclusive. And no man comes to the Father but by me. Every other way is a dead end. Every other supposed truth is a lie. Every other promise of life is an empty promise that leads only to death. It is in Jesus and Jesus alone that we have salvation. There is one mediator, says 1 Timothy 2.5, between God and man. Not two, not four, and it's not you. There's one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. There is no other table than this table. There is no other bread, and there is no other blood, and there is no other Savior, and there is no other name. And as we come today, beloved, we come to this table as, as a place to remember him, to focus on that chief cornerstone, the one who suffered in our place, the wrath that we were due. It is here that we declare his death, that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. And it is here that we proclaim his life, that he has arisen, exalted, and returning Savior. Hebrews 9.28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, Jesus will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And that is our great joy and hope, is it not? It is here at this table that we enjoy Christ together as his people. The redeemed who glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Our Lord, you are the rock of our salvation, our strength, our hope, our only help. There is salvation in no other name. There is no other place to look, Lord, apart from you. And we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your compassion on us, knowing that we were once cut off and alienated. We were helpless and we were ungodly. We were sinners and we were enemies, and yet in every case, Lord, you died for us. And you have now adopted us as your own. You have torn the veil and entered in and called us then into the presence of God, into the very holy of holies where we dwell. You have called us into your rest to be your people forever and ever. Lord, we thank you and praise you that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that you are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that, Lord, today we stand white as snow, white as wool, though our sins are as crimson, because of the power of your name and the efficacy of your sacrifice on our behalf. We give you thanks. May our time this afternoon be full of the joy of the Lord, knowing that you have called us your own and you have called us into this fellowship, both with you and with one another. And Lord, you're glorified and honored as your people.
receive the gift that you've given in your son. Lord, may our fellowship be pleasing to you in every respect. In Christ's name, amen.